What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Hot Shot Wake Up. This is your Friday show. Thanks for tuning in and listening. All sorts of crazy and weird stuff going on in the wildfire world this week. Overall, nationwide and internationally, it really depends where you are when it comes to what kind of activity you're seeing. There's some prescribed burns happening up in Idaho, but at the same time, they did have kind of a blast of some lightning starts closer in and around Boise in the grasslands. The Pacific Northwest is getting a little bit of drizzle and rain. California's been kind of slow. They've had a couple small fires, but that's about it. Canada had some activity, but again, that has slowed over the last couple days. And then Brazil, Australia, and other countries in the Southern Hemisphere are starting to see a little bit of increased activity as we move into their summer season and our winter season. When it comes to what else is going on, the few things I'm going to touch on today, states are now introducing wildfire taxes. And basically, what's being proposed is something like a tenth of a percent of a sales tax in a county or in a state that then they will apply to wildfire mitigation efforts within those borders. I'm kind of torn on this. I'm for and against it at the same time. I'm going to try to sort it out as I explain to the audience what's going on. But obviously, there needs to be more funding. But I'm always wary when new taxes come into play because 99.9 times out of 100, those taxes just never go away. And in oftentimes the same frequency, they increase over time. And Colorado specifically is really looking at this. And that should be a state already with a surplus. Once they passed their marijuana laws, they saw a huge influx of cash into their system. But there's only certain specific things you can use that money for. And the individuals who put forth this bill, which is getting voted on, so the voters will have a say in this, are saying that Colorado now has a fire year and no longer has a fire season. And again, I don't 100% agree with that. Yes, there was a fire that caught a lot of people off guard through the winter. But honestly, you had very tall grass, abnormally strong winds, and I think that was kind of a one-off. If we saw December and January fires like we did this last season in Colorado going into Christmas and the New Year, I will be shocked and blown away. And overall, like we talked about on the last podcast, when it comes to acres burned, it's actually down this year. And depending on how far you zoom out on the data, it's down in the last hundred years. But I'm just explaining that I see this language a lot now, which is mostly politicians are saying, hey, we have fire years now. We don't have fire seasons that's just not true. We, we do have fire seasons still, but just talk to all the firefighters out there right now that are getting rained out and didn't hit a thousand hours of overtime this year. That being said, 
depending on what region you were in, these I know these Region 3 crews did quite well, and they slammed out the overtime hours, and they're happy to be done. They're shut down. But all in all, we'll cover this whole tax situation on a later segment. We're also going to talk about a decision that came down out of California dealing with former executives of PG&E. They settled in court and sounds like a payment of $117 million is going out. And if I understand it correctly, it's not the company directly that was sued, but former executives that were sued by this family trust that was developed out of PG&E going bankrupt. But before we get into all of that, just today, there was some congressional hearings and some representatives from the Forest Service and the Department of the Interior, the Bureau of Land Management, were asked about this provision, which is the three-day break in service for wildland firefighters that causes you to lose your benefits and very possibly you lose the money that you've put into the system for retirement. And if you're in a break of service for more than three days, let's say you're taking mental health days as it is, or you're helping a sick family member, an emergency arises, there is this provision in both of these departments, and I'll play the clip that took place this afternoon where they say, yeah, this is the provision. And when Senator Manchin, who was doing the questioning, started asking, well, do you want to change this? Should we change this? Do you see this as a problem? They kind of danced around it and said, hey, this is an Office of Personnel Management issue. It's not just firefighters. This can happen to other federal workers. And not a lot of answers came out of it. However, this does raise awareness on the issue. So before we go any further, I will play the clip from the congressional hearing, and then we'll discuss what was said. Mr. Rupert, Mr. Crockett, the next one's for you. Uh, we talked about the firefighter retirement, the three-day. I mean, none of this makes sense at all. So um, uh, if you can explain to me uh, how we can correct this, or basically, uh, is, it, is it codified by law? You have to do it that way, or is that in-house Basically, you're, you're, uh, the way you operate in, in, in your agencies. And what can be done to change, or do you see a change coming? Or do you need us to make the change for you? So I, I don't mind going first on this one. So thank you for the question. So it's actually a, a statutory and regulatory. And uh, we'd invite a conversation. So we feel like the real experts are at our Office of Personnel Management, okay. OPM. So we'd invite a conversation between the... Are you all recognizing that this, there's just an inequity there? I mean, something has to change. It doesn't make any sense at all that a person... I'm understanding. If a firefighter takes more than a three-day break in service, and they've been there for over 20 years, uh, they not only lose their retirement benefits, they also lose all the money they previously paid into the system, too. That's the way it's codified? Is it codified, or is that the way you all interpret it? So my so 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 there is code for for that special retirement those benefits the my understanding of the three day break that that's that's within the regulatory framework. You can change that without us kind of changing the code. Well, so I, maybe just to add a little bit, um, you know, I think it's 
one really important aspect to figure out is as we talk about wildland firefighters breaking service, recognizing that the same um, the same sort of challenge and concern um, um, affects other sectors of federal employment. So this so this this touches more than just federal wildland firefighters. So there's a strong consideration there. I think to your point, we we do regularly hear that this is an Let issue for this. firefighters. Are you all opposing the changes we would make if we codified and changed the law? I mean, I, I don't want. The worst thing we can do is we, we do something with well-intended here, ends up in, by the time you all decipher through the agencies what you want to do, and then we get in a tit-for-tat back and forth. We don't want that to do. If you see the inequity here, the unfairness to the system, we can clarify it for you very, very quickly. We just want to make sure you all adhere to it. If you think it's unfair. From from my perspective, I think it's really important to, to recognize, I mean, there's sort of an equity we know, we know across the government, and and, but to your point, I mean, I regularly hear from wildland firefighters that three-day break in services are real, has a real impact. And you all, and, and you're compassionate about that. You think we can change. If we can if we can carve this out and select so we don't cross over into your jur other jurisdictions, I think is what you're saying. Mr. Crockett, do you all agree to? Yeah, it's, it's really important to our firefighters, and if we can get it figured out, okay. it's going to make life easier. I got you. With that, we'll go to Senator Brasso. Okay, so you heard that they are aware of this three-day of separation code, I guess they're calling it. But if you listen, you can tell that the senator is kind of pressing them, saying, hey, I'll change this if you want me to change it. You just have to tell me to change it. The Forest Service representative, Mr. Crockett, I believe it was, like his counterpart, doesn't say yes or no, but he is more along the lines of saying, hey, this is what the firefighters want, and, you know, if we should change it, we should change it. The individual from the Department of the Interior, you could tell, was kind of dancing around it, but because he didn't want to stumble over what the code was or who it affects, and, hey, this might not be our jurisdiction, I think, was the biggest one. Like, this might be an OPM issue, Office of Personnel Management issue, and I don't want to sit here under oath and start making claims that I can change this stuff. What I think can be agreed upon is some sort of change when it comes to this should happen. I don't know how often this actually happens. If someone misses more than three days and then you're slapped with all of these repercussions, such as losing benefits and retirement from what you've put in, I do know you have your permanent seasonals, we'll call them, where you'll break in service through the off-season, even though you're a permanent employee, and you can lose your benefits through the off-season, and people are searching around for health insurance and all those other things. Of course, I don't think that should be the case. We should be able to supply that for the employees and the firefighters. And again, simply don't tell me the money's not there. Because just this morning, we sent another $12.5 billion over to fight a war in Europe. And on that kind of note, I'll talk about the overtime the payments that should have been coming. It still seems like the majority of folks haven't been seeing the payout for the overtime. And I know I just took a left turn there, but it's important to talk about because it all comes back to retention and keeping good people around who enjoy the job, want to be there in the first place, 
as an employer, such as the Forest Service or the Bureau of Land Management, you should be striving to hang on to these folks. But somewhere way up the chain, there's a bunch of mistakes being made or a code where it's like, hey, I know your brother got into a car accident and you've been gone for seven days and you didn't have any sick leave to take. So you've hit this three-day mark and you've actually lost your contributions to your 401k and your benefits are gone. As I've said before, we are seeing more and more conversation on these topics when it comes to congressional members questioning what is all of this code in paragraph 47, subsection B, line five, uh, you know, what is this and why did it get, you know, why did someone sneak it in there? Ultimately, it seems like a piece of code that's a sneaky money saver for the government, which if these bills are getting written by or these policies are getting written by lawyers who they've been told to have cost containment, you would sneak something like this in there. I'm sure there's other reasons why this was put in there, but I think it's pretty clear to everybody that with the issues going on with employment and retention, you just got to fix that. So it's it's horrible policy is what it comes down to. And I think the more and more this stuff is discussed and exposed and talked about openly. I'm, I'll be the first one to tell you that I don't know what the exact policy should be or all of the policy that needs to be changed or modified. I don't. There's just so much that needs to be picked apart. I'm curious if any of my listeners have been affected by this three-day policy. There's similar policy when it comes to sick leave, obviously not as severe, but like if you have a ton of sick leave, if you use more than three days of sick leave, at least where I worked, at that point in time, you have to prove you're sick, get a doctor's note, and if you don't have that, you have to come back into work, even if you have a bunch of sick leave saved up. And then there was the debate of, hey, if I just need a mental health day, I'm going to take some sick leave. And that was always a gray area. You would have some supervisors be like, yeah, just mark it down as sick leave and you take the day off. And there was other supervisors who were like, absolutely not. If you're not sick, you can't take sick leave. Come into the office, even though it's December 17th and there's absolutely nothing to do until January 1st. And that's another thing that can be dangerous or upsetting or confusing is leaving these gray areas in there and saying, okay, and sometimes we can do this, sometimes we can't do that. And there's benefits and cons to all of that. But I think overall, the more we can clear it up, the better. It's that back to the overtime and the incentive pay. The gray area there is people are calling Albuquerque and saying, hey, when am I going to see this? And the overwhelming response from what I've been told is, you'll see it the first pay period of September. Well, we're going into October and people aren't seeing it. And, and you know, I could understand there being frustration in Albuquerque if they just don't have an answer to give, but they're told, hey, just keep looking in the next check, keep looking in the next check. 
that's going to make the HR people frustrated as well because they want to help people and they don't have the right answers to give out. But the way things are being discussed in congressional testimony now, it seems like there is this push to start making the changes that are necessary, even though if it's just one little chunk at a time. Ideally, you pass the Tim Hart Act and you get this swath of legislation and policy passed that fixes a lot of problems. One of my followers actually went and met with someone who was running in his district for office this November, and this gal was kind enough to meet him out in a forest, and they discussed the Tim Hart Act, they discussed what firefighters carry, and kind of just went through what it's like being a wildland firefighter. That individual who's running is Courtney Geels, could be Gels, it's G-E-E-L-S, and props to her for taking the time out of her day to discuss this. She put out a YouTube video on her campaign site, it was all over Facebook, and it was great to see someone in the wildland fire world being very proactive. They called this gal and said, hey, are you willing to discuss the Tim Hart Act with me? Would you support it if you got elected? And so much so that the campaign manager said, hey, let's record this conversation, bring a fire pack, show us what's what, and let's put it out there. It was great to see. I'd love to see more of it. And again, if this is something you care about and you're a voter— It's very simple. You call or email your representatives or the people who are running this November and simply ask them, hey, do you know what the Tim Hart Act is? Have you heard about it? Is this something you support? If you get elected or if you get reelected, is this something that you will support while you're in Congress? And just look for that yes or no answer. All in all, it's been thrust into the forefront of the conversation The talking points are getting more specific, and when it comes to progress being made, I think it's safe to say that yes, it is happening, but there are still those shortfalls that are occurring, specifically with people's pay. And I'd love to see some sort of update or new timeline for this job series that has been postponed now. And I would like to see more sponsors on these bills. But again, the election's coming, so I wouldn't expect anything to really get passed before that. But are we seeing more representatives talking about issues that affect wildland firefighters? That answer is yes. I have traveled this year over all the United States. Through the Alleghenies, the White Mountains, and the Catskills, the Rockies and the Bitterroot Mountains, the Cascades, the Coast Range, and the Sierras. I have traveled, traveled, traveled. There was a conversation that we had on Wednesday's show on our Substack about the Mosquito Fire, and the investigation that's currently happening with PG&E. And just today, more news came out 
when it's regarding wildfire and this power company over wildfires that happened back in 2017 and 2018. The LA Times reported on this, speaking on the settlement that happened, and the Family Trust, or the Family Wildfire Trust, I believe it's called, sued former executives of the company over their inaction about maintaining lines and other things when it came to the 2017 North Bay fires and the 2018 Camp Fire. It says the former officers and directors were sued by a victim trust that claimed the deadly fires were the direct result of the former executive's actions, and the trust announced on Thursday that an agreement was finalized in the San Francisco Superior Court. It's saying a dozen fires were caused in Northern California in October of 2017 and were sparked by downed power lines owned by PG&E, according to CAL FIRE. The fires raged across California's wine country, including Napa, Sonoma, Humboldt, Butte, Mendocino counties, and it killed 19 people. I was on those fires, and it was crazy. It was, it was absolutely wild. We showed up right when it was ripping through Napa and Sonoma County, and as we were pulling into town, there was a massive traffic jam of everybody trying to get out. We were tossed right into the mix, basically picket a division, and they got work for you. We're going to send you out here. We show up, and you're instantly cutting and working because there's all sorts of houses burning down, and this caught a lot of people off guard. The article continues saying, a year later, the campfire was sparked in Butte County by a faulty electrical equipment operated by PG&E. The fire ripped through several communities, including the town of Paradise, and in total, 85 people died in the fire, making it the deadliest fire in state's history. PG&E filed for bankruptcy back in 2019 after it announced a $13.5 billion settlement with fire victims and their families. The PG&E Fire Victim Trust was created after the agreement under the utility company's bankruptcy reorganization plan. Last year, the trust sued 20 former PG&E officers, directors, and claimed they were directly responsible for the fires because of their breach of fiduciary duties to act in the best interest of the utility company. It's all very interesting because this victim's trust that was created out of the company going bankrupt is now suing former employees of said company. It's all very, very interesting. Continuing, it says, investigators with the California Public Utilities Commission found that there were systematic problems with PG&E's oversight of the nearly 100-year-old power line that sparked the campfire. PG&E took over that power line in 1930, according to the 2019 report. PG&E pleaded guilty to 84 counts of involuntary manslaughter. In all, the lawsuit that was filed by the trust sought to hold the former executives accountable for not properly maintaining vegetation around electrical equipment and not installing power shutoff equipment at the time of the 2017 fire. The suit also argued that the utility company did not properly update 100-year-old equipment in connection to the campfire. Now, this is kind of interesting. 
an attorney, when explaining where these funds would go, and it's $117 million, it says, quote, these funds will be used to satisfy the vast majority of outstanding fire victim claims held by certain federal agencies that assisted in battling the fires and providing assistance to victims. The funding will go to agencies such as FEMA, state agencies, and other groups that helped house fire victims, which the trust is required to pay as part of the bankruptcy plan. With the vast majority of this settlement with the federal agencies satisfied, the trust is close to being able to use all future net recoveries from assigned claims to benefit other fire victims. So let's break that part down. Basically, what's being decided is that, as far as I understand it, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but as far as I understand it, no actual civilian victims are getting any sort of payout until FEMA is fully reimbursed, state agencies are reimbursed, and other agencies that helped out within this emergency get paid off first. I find that amazing. So the Family Victim Trust sued these former executives. They win $117 million. And the lawyers say, well, no, it's all going to FEMA and state and federal agencies. It's not going to any of the victims, actually. Which this was all agreed upon in the bankruptcy agreement that took place with PG&E. And granted, this is the last paragraph in the article. So if you just read the headline, PG&E pays out, or PG&E former executives pay out $117 million to victims' families. No, the former executives actually are paying $117 million to the government. And this was all predetermined in the bankruptcy agreement that was nurtured by Governor Gavin Newsom, who happens to have a very close relationship, it seems, with this power company. And I say that because, and you can find this, there's articles everywhere, of his wife receiving a bunch of nonprofit donations from PG&E for her nonprofit groups. Take from that what you will. But if I had a nonprofit and someone gave me hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, and then my significant other was working on issues with that company, man, you would think there'd be some sort of conflict of interest there. And I wouldn't be saying all of this if the article and the lawyer said, yep, $117 million that we just won today is going directly to the family's who lost everything, including family members. But nope, FEMA gets paid off first. And that's where I'll segue into this new bill that was passed by the Senate directly involving FEMA with wildland fire. And this bill, which is acronymed the FIRE Act, goes by the name of the FEMA Improvement Reform and Efficiency Act. And basically, it still needs to be passed by... The House of Representatives, if they change anything, it's got to be repassed by the Senate, and then it goes to the president's desk, and then he has to sign off on it to make it law. But this bill basically gives FEMA the authority to pre-position resources on red flag days, on days where forests think 
there's high fire danger. It tries to streamline some of the financial resources for rebuilding and people who are requesting help out of FEMA. And what I find fascinating is there was a lot of chatter this spring about FEMA having their own wildland fire organization. And hey, oh, the Bureau of Land Management and the Forest Service is so messed up that we should just give everything over to FEMA. And that's a hot button issue because there's a lot of folks who don't want that. And there's some folks who do want that. And on the con side, people are like, well, let's just fix what we have. There's no need to scrap entire agencies to rebuild it somewhere else. And again, it's fascinating because we are giving authority and power to FEMA more and more when it comes to how wildland fires are managed. And I'm not saying that, you know, FEMA is going to start taking over wildfire incidents. To be honest with you, I wouldn't be surprised if that comes down the line in a few years. But my question is, okay, now you have the legal authority to pre-position resources on red flag days. So Northern California gets an influx of FEMA trailers and all sorts of other things. Do they also have the authority to talk to coordination centers and say, hey, you need to provide more resources as well? It doesn't seem like, or at least how I understand it, that that is the case, but it looks like there is going to be some more coordination and more, you know, I've I've said it before, more authority given to FEMA for these pre-positioning type activities. And why I segued into that, one, I think it's very important that people understand that this is coming down the pipe, and two... When it comes full circle back to PG&E and this pre-planned bankruptcy that happened within the government of California and the creation of this Families Victim Trust, which is misleading, honestly, because the Family Victims Trust is basically representing government agencies. And when it comes to winning $117 million, instead of that money going directly to the families, it's paying off FEMA for what they spent to work these campfires in the North Bay fires in 2017-2018. I'm not saying PG&E shouldn't be responsible for that, but it's a question of who should get paid out first. And all that being said, these are settlements dating back from events in 2017, so five years. And as we spoke about at the beginning of this segment, we have the investigation happening around the mosquito fire and if we stick to the same timeline if indeed forest service investigators say hey yep it was a pg&e power line that caused this thing you know the the cost is over 100 million dollars houses were lost and the whole process starts again if you follow the same timeline you won't see a resolution to that until almost 2028 and then again If you're going to pay out federal and state agencies before families, you start thinking, hey, are people who lost their homes in the mosquito fire not going to see any help for over five years? Obviously, if you have insurance, that will definitely help. But even that is kind of shady because California, their insurance commission, had to mandate the other week that insurance companies can't cancel policies on people who got their houses burned down. 
you shouldn't have to mandate that, but it's if that's the case and that sort of thing is happening, it's like, okay, that is probably proper government oversight to stop that from happening. All in all, what it really looks like is if you're a civilian that gets everything destroyed in a wildfire and you join a class action lawsuit and join this fund, you're on the bottom rung and the little guy is basically screwed until all the big boys get paid out. I thought I'd cover that. I didn't expect it when I first saw the headline of, hey, the Family Victims Trust got paid out $117 million. The, when I read the headline, I was like, oh, nice. The, a bunch of the families and the victims are getting a bunch of money. But then again, you have to read all the way to the bottom of the article, and the lawyers are like, oh, yeah, actually, it's all going to FEMA and some state and county people. It's like, oh, what? Well, those fires cost billions of dollars, and this is $117 million of that, so roughly 10%. Are the families actually going to ever see anything? <laughs> you know, it seems like PG&E and the state of California together worked out the best bankruptcy guidelines that benefit both the company and the state much more than actually helping the victims of these fires. I have traveled this year over all the United States, through the Alleghenies, the White Mountains, and the Catskills, the Rockies and the Bitterroot Mountains, Cascades, the Coast Range, and the Sierras. I have traveled... This week, a lot of places slowed down when it came to wildfire activity. Some saw some increases, that being Oklahoma, Texas saw some new fire activity. And even though they did see some moisture come through the area about a month ago and kind of persisted for a while, temperatures are back up in that southern area. Grass has grown and things are drying out again to the point where they're getting these fires. The Great Basin, which is Region 4, Nevada, parts of Idaho, Utah, they're seeing a bunch of moisture push in. They have a bunch of snow predicted here in a couple days over the weekend. I'm sure people who are getting to the tail end of their seasons are watching that snow report because they want to go skiing. The Pacific Northwest still has fires, but they have mellowed out quite a bit. There's kind of a short little burst of fires in southern Idaho, something like seven fires, and that's just the tall grass component that's burning. And California has slowed down as well, even though we're pushing into that Santa Ana winds season. All that being said, there's not a whole lot of new stuff to cover operationally, but we'll run through it real quick before we move on to our last topic. But nationally, the preparedness level's down to two, which is indicative of the season coming to an end. There were 97 new fires nationally. One new large incident down in Oklahoma. Like I said, Oklahoma and Texas are starting to see some increased activity. There's still 22 uncontained large fires in the nation and 81 fires being managed. The Northwest area is back down to a PL2. Six new fires in the last 24 hours. And again, it's the names we've all heard before. The Cedar Creek, the Double Creek, the Sturgill, the Nebo, the Goat Rocks which is an interesting one. The Goat Rocks kind of puffed up a little bit the other day out in the wilderness. 
near Packwood, Washington, and they were doing some indirect line construction, and it's just way out there, and some of the footage that's coming out is pretty great. All that being said, if you take the Cedar Creek, they're not saying that will be contained until November. That crested over $100 million in cost. They still have almost 1,300 people on that incident. The Double Creek's huge, 162,000 acres. That has a containment date of October 31st. And you even have some of these managed fires up in Washington where their containment dates are all the way pushed back to December 31st. Not a bad gig if you can get it. If you're a PERM employee and you don't want to be stuck in the office in the Pacific Northwest, it looks like there's a lot of fires that you'll be able to just go check in on once we start pushing into these winter months. Northern California, again, down to a PL2, four new fires in the last 24 hours. And the only thing really of note is the Mosquito Fire. That's getting wrapped up. The biggest news there is the investigation that's ongoing. That's currently 76,775 acres, almost 1,400 people still on it, a cost nearing $120 million, but they are calling that 85% contained. The Northern Rockies has settled down quite a bit. Like I said, there's some prescribed burning happening. They only had two new fires in the last 24 hours. They had been seeing some moisture. The last couple days, it's been warm, it's been sunny, but they are having some weather move back in. And the only fire that is being reported on that's not a managed fire is the Kootenai River Complex at 22,000 acres. Some slight growth overnight, 225 acres in growth, but they're saying they can call it 85% contained. Cost of $11 million and about 225 people currently on that. Other than that, Every other fire in the region is being managed. And again, it's 30-something plus fires. Hardly any resources on them unless you're on the Bull Gin Complex. You're on that Bloggett Lake fire. There's, you know, 130 people on that. Surprisingly, the Indian Ridge fire still has some folks on it. That's burning at nearly 9,000 acres. And all in all, it's just a massive list of fires being managed in both Idaho and Montana. And when it comes to containment, again, like the Pacific Northwest, you have a bunch of fires where they're just slapping the date down of October 31st and saying, hey, by October 31st, this thing should be wrapped up. But some of the other managed fires are, they're pushing it all the way back to December, late December, December 31st, December 15th, December 1st. And again, it's just a great way to get out of the office in the off season if you don't have these fires contained you do have to have people go check in on them. And it's a good way to get out of the office and jump in a truck, put it in four-wheel drive, and rip down a snow-covered road. The Great Basin, again, down to a PL2. The Moose Fire, still going. They have it at 53% contained and 130,000 acres. That's approaching $100 million in cost. Personnel has dropped substantially, down to around 460 people on it. And they're saying by the end of October, that should be wrapped up. And the rest in the Great Basin are these managed fires. The Ross Fork Fire has been moved on to the managed list at 37,000 acres. I was kind of shocked to see that, but I understand why they're doing it. It's slowed significantly, and now they can just let it smolder around and clean up the forest a little bit. That one's cost $17.4 million to date. 
And again, it's another one of these fires where they've just said, October 31st, we think it's going to be done. The southern area, even though they're at a PL2, they saw what I would consider the most activity. You had a Kearns Ranch fire in Oklahoma, over 3,000 acres. You had a Four Mile Creek fire in Oklahoma, went over 500 acres. The Blue Hole fire in Oklahoma at 1,200 acres. And they just had some high winds. Shocking that they didn't have it in red flag, but some warmer temperatures, high winds, and these they got these starts, and they have this tall grass crop that's still around causing these issues. Other than that, not a whole lot going on. If you look at Brazil, it's starting to pick up. There's an increase in fire activity down there, and a couple fires here and there over in Australia, but I think as the months go on, we'll see a lot, a lot more activity in those areas. That's basically the operational update. Again, we're moving into that prescribed fire season, and you're seeing more of these aerial ignitions, both with helicopter and drone. One that stands out is the Simmons prescribed burn in the Idaho panhandle. It looks like it's going well. Great fire effects from what I've seen from footage that's been sent in, and I think we'll see an increase of that as the days go on. But that's your operational update. I'll take this time to thank all of the paid Substack subscribers. If you want to support what I do, if you want to support firefighter donations, if you want the availability of the Wednesday podcast, all of the articles that we put out, the last PG&E article that I put out dealing with the mosquito fire, 9,000 reads in 48 hours. Double what our email list is. So it got shared a lot. People were interested in that, and I appreciate it. But I have no advertising or ad revenue coming in off of that. And everything that I do is supported through those paid Substack subscribers. If you would like to support what I do, you go to thehotshotwakeup.substack.com. Click on that subscribe button. It's $6. And that allows me to, number one, stay ad-free. Two, it allows me to donate those funds when firefighters in need reach out and say, hey, you know, my buddy had an accident. There was a car accident. We've helped the smoke jumpers who had issues when they were coming in for landing. Individuals whose fathers and others suffering from cancer and needed some funds for that. And none of that would be possible without those paid Substack subscribers. So thank you. Thank you to all the free subscribers as well. A lot of you I know are sharing the podcast, sharing the articles. And like I always say, if you can't be a paid subscriber to the Substack, just like the podcast on Apple Podcasts, like the podcast on Spotify, share those, share the Substack links, and that also supports what I do as well. So thank you to everybody out there. The community has grown substantially when it comes to people who are reading and listening, and it's great to see a lot of outsiders who aren't in the fire world starting to participate and try to understand what the issues are, what the impacts of certain legislation is, the issues that come up with pay, housing, mental health. There's a lot of the public that now has a view into this world and actually genuinely wants to understand why it's all happening, why it isn't changing. And it's very, very refreshing to see that. So once again, thank you to those paid subscribers. Thank you to the free subscribers. None of this would be possible without you. 
I have traveled this year over all the United States, through the Alleghenies, the White Mountains, and the Catskills, the Rockies and the Bitterroot Mountains, the Cascades, the Coast Range, and the Sierras. So lastly in the show, I just want to have a quick conversation about legislation that's coming out when it comes to wildfire taxes. I think you will see more and more of this, and I'd like to just have a brief conversation about what I think about it all, and I'm curious what you think about it as well. I'm kind of on the fence, to be honest with you. Like I said at the beginning of the show, I understand that there's funding issues for all of this, Specifically where this piece of legislation that is getting voted on, it's coming from Colorado. And in January, I think it was, maybe February, we put out a podcast and an article on the Substack explaining that there was a mass quit. There was a mass resignation that happened in Colorado when it came to fire departments, specifically wildland folks. Because they felt like the funding wasn't there and they weren't being supported. They had a bunch of requests for what they needed to continue their work. And we're told you can't get that or it's not in the budget or whatever. And it was a big deal because in one town, it was an entire department that left. Then some negotiating started. And I think this may be one of the outcomes of that event with the state and these counties trying to figure out how to better supply, better support their agencies. And it's all coming after kind of a wild early spring in Colorado where they had some wildfires rip through and destroy some homes. Since then, Colorado has been very, very quiet. There's, they've had some IAs, some smaller ones, but basically all season, you really haven't heard of any large fires coming out of Colorado. In May and June, you saw a couple fires, but nothing that really romped and caused a lot of issues. So let's get down to it. This legislation is coming out of Boulder County, Colorado. And what it says, it's entitled just County Issue 1A, and that would establish a tenth of a percent sales and use tax to fund wildfire mitigation efforts. Not only is our summer fire season now year-round, but last December we all saw the devastating new threat that wildfires pose to all corners of our community. Now, uh, I, I just think that's a stretch. We've talked about it a lot. We still have fire seasons. The United States, if you look at, okay, well, the East Coast has fire super early and the West Coast has fire super late, you can make the argument that as a whole, the United States has a fire year. But really, if you toss out this fire that happened in Colorado last December, there's not a lot going on through the winter. But I understand they're trying to sell this and sensationalism sells. And the only reason I go off on this tangent is I see that terminology more and more and more. And you can't escape it. If someone's talking about wildfire, the third sentence out of their mouth is, there's no longer a fire season. It's a fire year. It's like, ah, talk to the firefighters. That's just not true. But moving forward, 
It says that the impacts of climate change mean that the community must act proactively to address these increasing risks, meaning because of climate change, we need to impose new taxes. This proposed tax would provide the county with about $11 million each year to help with a variety of mitigation efforts, such as conducting strategic forest and grassland management projects, protecting drinking water supplies, creating more resilient forest and grassland ecosystems, and extending an existing wildfire partners program to residents in the east of the county. Now, as I said, I'm on the fence, and you can probably hear that. And I'm torn. I just am. I understand there's funding issues. $11 million actually would go a long way if it's spent correctly. But it's that whole thing of once taxes are implemented, you probably just, they're going to be there forever. So if there is a shift in Colorado, specifically Boulder County, has 14 super slow fire years in a row, it's not like they're going to revoke this tax, or I think it would take a lot for them to do that. So that's kind of why I'm on the fence. And I don't live in Boulder County. It's a wealthier county. I do know that. But ultimately, I don't think it should be a matter of, well, you should tax people just because they can afford it. And I'm just thinking out loud here now. They did have issues. They had funding problems. They had a resource response issue in December with this wildfire that ripped across the plains and ate up a bunch of homes. So there's a lot of angry constituents and they're looking for solutions. And when it comes to revenue generating, it's really easy to introduce new revenue generators after there's a tragedy or some sort of large incident. And I wasn't specifically talking about in previous episodes about a wildfire tax being implemented, but we have had the conversations of these wildfire risk maps that are starting to pop up everywhere now. I discussed how maybe... If you're in a risk area, governments would now say, hey, we have to increase your taxes. Hey, your insurance rates are going to go up. And I just think that needs to be upfront. People need to be aware of where this incremental creep can happen. I'll follow this vote, which is happening in November with the traditional election that's, that's happening. And I'm curious how the residents of Boulder County are going to vote on this. There's two other initiatives. There's one for emergency management funding for like ambulances and such. And then there's another one on transit services, roadway safety, and dealing with corridors throughout the county. So I'm curious, like, are are people just going to blanket vote yes or no for all of these? Or are they going to pick and choose which one they want and one will pass and two won't or vice versa. Usually when it's left in the hands of the voters and it comes to a new tax, they're going to vote against it. But you're also voting for funding emergency management services and firefighters. So we'll just see where that all goes. I think we'll see more of this. I wouldn't be surprised to see this happen in California, in the Western United States, and kind of start to creep into the other states as well. It could be an easy source of funding for these projects. But that being said, how did we fund them before? We we funded them through other taxes, through federal taxes, state taxes, county taxes, property taxes, sales taxes, gas taxes. All the while, our tax money is being sent all over the place, and full circle, we still can't get 
overtime supplemental pay to federal employees. I would be more willing for new taxes, even if it is a tenth of a percent, to fund wildfire operations and emergency management services if you just saw what was already taken being spent more appropriately and more responsibly. Maybe I'm all on my own on this subject. Maybe everybody disagrees with me and they're like, I don't care where our tax money goes. I don't care what they do with it. I don't care how high it is. And I'd like your opinion on it. Let me know in the comments. Hit me up with a message or an email. If anybody wants to send me an email, I'll throw this out there. The email address is thehotshotwakeup at gmail.com. And you can reach out to me there as well. That's the show for today. There is some news going into the fall. It does sound like that some organizations and myself are putting together kind of like a makeshift speaking tour. There's some universities that have reached out to me and some wildfire clubs and organizations within universities who have reached out and said, hey, will you come speak? We'd love to have an open-ended conversation with our students and our faculty just about the hotshot world and wildfire and people who want to be a part of that, which I'm a huge proponent of. I think it's good for especially younger folks to at least experience it, some sort of service, some sort of labor, some sort of really hard work that tests an individual mentally and physically. So I'm more than willing to travel and and have those conversations. As those things get more solidified and closer, I'll be more specific. But it's looking like it's going to start off in Montana. I have been invited down to Colorado as well, so I might make a sweep down there. But I'd like to fill the schedule up if I'm going to be doing all of that. But just something to look forward to. I'll post on the social media and the Substack once all of that is more solidified on what's going on and where I'm going to be. But it sounds like if I'm going to Montana, I'm going to hang out in Bozeman for a while, visit with a bunch of people, maybe do some interviews. Then I'm going to go to Missoula and talk to the college there and students there. If you don't know, very large wildfire community happening there. It's also very familiar to me because I've lived in Montana for many, many years. Not currently, but Montana is basically a second home to me. So something to look forward to. In closing, thanks again to all the paid Substack subscribers, all the free subscribers. Like, subscribe, share this, leave a good review. And I really appreciate everybody who just tunes in and listens and reads. If there's someone out there you haven't talked to in a while, reach out to them, see how they're doing. It's the end of the season, so in about four weeks after you've been laid off, that's when the end of season blues kicks in. So don't get too down in the dumps after you go 180 miles an hour all summer and then just slam on the brakes. Be aware of what that is and what can help with that. Well, getting good rest, hydration, quality calories, fitness, keep your fitness up. That's just free dopamine if you get a workout in. And for the paid Substack subscribers, you get a workout every Monday. But you have to remember when you get up, you got to get it done. (laughs) 